Welcome back to season two of the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced running physiotherapist, coach, and marathoner. This season will involve open discussions with my running colleagues about the key principles behind injury-free running and optimal performance. It'll be backed by personal experience, science, and history. I can only hope some of these chats inspire curiosity and expand or confirm perspectives and beliefs amongst the running community. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Uh, today I'm with John Marcus. John Marcus has been a running coach for a long time now in the US. He's also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the On Coaching Podcast with Steve Magnus, where he regularly questions the status quo in regards to run coaching. His blend of science and art and openness has been a breath of fresh air. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, John. Well, shit, Dan, those are very nice words, man. I appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you so much. I'm humbled to be here. Um, ju- just off air before um, you spoke at, about how you met um, Steve and and how the podcast formed, uh, do you mind uh, just introducing yourself to the listeners um, and a little bit about, um, I guess, your running journey and your coaching journey so far? Yeah, I mean, just real quick, you know, I was a, a footballer, as you guys would say, down under a soccer player, as we say here in the States. Um, became a pretty good runner in high school. Got myself, like, you know, some interest from colleges and thought I could be pretty good at running. And then seven stress fractures and four years later, that didn't happen. <laughs> so I was like, what the hell? Um, and that was kind of that journey to, you know, fix my own problem or figure it out is what spurred me into coaching it was like, I loved it. I loved the passion. I loved the excitement. I loved the enthusiasm. I just love people, um, seeing them improve and get better. Um, and then I had the good fortune to be living in Portland, Oregon at the time in the early 2000s, which, you know, because of uh, Nike's influence in the sport was a mecca for distance running. So Steve Magnus took a job with the disbanded Oregon Project, and he and I became close friends. Then he left, and we just stayed close friends. We kept calling each other, chatting about training, being like, Hey, what are your ideas on this? You know, we just have always bounced things off each other. And then we decided, hey, there's this new thing called podcasting out. <laughs> and we're both pretty open people. And so we're like, yeah, fuck it. Let's give it a shot. Let's yeah. see if anyone listens. What's going to hurt? We're already having this conversation. And, you know, fast forward seven years later, it's been a great, you know, excuse to maintain the marriage, as Steve and I say. Um, <laughs> he's married now. I've been married 10 years, but we've been married a long time, a lot longer than 10 years. And so, once a week, you know, I know I'm going to see Steve and we're going to chat offline, online. It's going to be a good time. And, you know, apparently some people listen. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I'm chatting to you right now and you're in your office and you're amongst about 2,000 running books. Um, I would uh, say running books. I'd say uh, wide, I'm a liberal arts 
uh, educated person. So it is a, a, a cornucopia of eclectic books. But yes, a lot running, a lot physical culture and training, strength conditioning, but also a shit ton of philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> um, your thirst for learning has been um, infectious and it, it definitely um, uh, influenced me to join your scholar program with you and Steve um, about a year ago. Um, and that's been fantastic for my humble beginnings as a coach. I've only coached for three years or so, and um, but it really has helped open my mind. Um, I've been prone to thinking pretty linearly a, about the sport at times, um, and uh, yeah, just sort of falling into sort of dichotomous ways of, of thought and, and traps. Um, why is it important to keep reminding ourselves that the world is complex? Um, John and uh, yeah, because um, that's something that I've really learnt from um, you and Steve and listening in. Honestly, it's just reality, right? These are all Mother Nature's laws. They're not mine. They're not yours. They're not anyone else's. Human beings have a great capacity to create up very simplistic fantasies or narratives, package them nice and neat, and sell them to other people and to make that the one and only explanation for phenomena. But as we know with the human body, and as we know with just life in general, there's multiple degrees of freedoms or pathway to accomplish a name, right? We know of three energy system fueling substrates to provide energy to our muscles and bodies and everything. That's three, right? We know two ways to get in oxygen, through the nose and through the mouth, right? We know a bunch of different ways to do a bunch of different things. Mother Nature created redundancy upon redundancy in us in life. Like two eyes, two ears, two nose, like you name it, right? Two kidneys, like we don't need all this redundancy, but it's there as a universal truth. And so I think we always have to remember whenever we um, fall into the trap of uh, binary or linear thinking, we're really just falling into someone else's uh, contrived marketing narrative or supercharged uh, emotional narrative that's really just aimed at getting their desired reaction out of us for their own good in their aim not for ours because again if we just go back to mother nature's laws she gave us multiple degrees of what we call flexibility to accomplish the same task in a variety of different environments predictable and unpredictable and if we don't remember that constantly I think uh, we're doing not only ourselves a fault as coaches, but also we're doing our athletes a disservice as well. Yeah, and then can can uh, linear thinking um, and simplifying things be helpful at times too, or like um, where can it be helpful and, and where can it sort of be um, disserving? Oh, totally can be helpful. Like it yeah. gets people in the door, right? Yeah. The first running boom was initially manufactured as a cardiorespiratory thing. Like, hey, you're, you're, and that was this big thrust of this consumer empowerment movement in the 1970s and 80s, where they're like, hey, you want to take control of your own health? Go and run. All you need is a pair of shoes and then sign up for these races and create running clubs and cultures and all this good stuff came from it. But it wasn't the whole story, right? And people who have held on to, this concept that's just about cardiac respiratory development and nothing else matters but getting the miles in, um, have found themselves with overuse injuries or what I label as misuse injuries. Um, you know, 
other kind of seesaw chronic elements, like maybe they're a fat runner and they're like, how am I fat? I run 50 miles a week. Well, it's not just about the cardiopulmonary capacity. It's also about energetics and nutrition and timing and periodization. That So again, it's, it's really good because it gets us in the door. And once we're in the door, I think we have, uh, you know, an opportunity and a privilege as coaches or people who are out in the space in this era to then start to show people there's other doors in the house versus just this one room versus the first room you came in. So we have to capture and hold that energy. But then at the same time, too, we also have to pivot, reorient and um, be a beacon and shine light on what I call the, uh, um, the bigger scope or uh, bigger pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, I am. I, um heard you talk on a few um, different podcasts in preparation for this podcast and um, I really liked one point that you made on one of the podcasts about how um, we are all a sample size of one and um, we aren't just um, the average um, the law of averages like we're all outliers and we're all, and the idea of individualization and personalization of training um, so you can have some basic um, uh, sort of schemas or heuristics to go by to sort of put yourself in the door, um, but then you've also got to um, uh, listen and feel and, and um, treat the person in front of you. Um, uh, uh, just because we all are at different life cycles and stages and, and we all adapt at different rates um, in training, um, yeah. How important is individualization? Um, I think this is a really good one for listeners to hear because um, for a long time in my career, I was just like copying people's training and, and thinking this was the bee's knees, you know, training method. And, and um, if I did that, that would be the secret. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a saying, right? It's like um, most people, it's just monkey see, monkey do. But what we forget is there's an intermediate step that's really important. Monkey see, but then monkey must understand before monkey do. <laughs> if monkey does not understand before they do, they do wrong, right? <laughs> and that's it's the reality, right? We have to take that intermediate step because, yeah, we live in a copy and paste era, right? People copy and paste. There's three energy systems, and this one this is an aerobic event. This is an aerobic event, but it's like, Dude, what does that really even mean? And then reminding people all energy systems are always on all the time, no matter what. That's Mother Nature's plan. It's just some are more dominant at certain moments depending on intensity, environment, you know, variety of fact cofactors than at other times. And we have to get fundamentally aware about what we want to do and try to influence a preference or adaptation for um, in terms of energy system development. And so the hard part is, right, it's like we always got to keep these two kind of conflicting concepts in our mind concurrently to be really good at what we do. So everyone's a special snowflake. Yes, correct. But everyone's not special. And what that means is like for a snowflake to exist, certain environmental conditions have to take place. I've never seen a snowflake in the Mojave Desert. doesn't matter. So a lot of people misconstrue individualization as saying it's this – you know, I, I'm so unique and so different. And so, and it's like, yeah, there's degrees. And I mean, I've known athletes with a blood condition where their hematocrit could never get above 30%, right? 
right? And so it's like, it is going to be. And I know people's hematocrit is just naturally at like 50 to 60, which if you're in the Tour de France is a red flag that you're doping, right? <laughs> but that's just their natural composition. So those are what we call talents. Talents are things that we might not have a direct influence in over training, like your height, your limb length, uh, you know, is your talent, your hair color, natural, your skin color, that could be considered a talent, your body composition, your bone density, the how your, you know, femur and femoral head fits into your acetabulum socket and the hip joint might be a little different, your pelvis, this and that, all these things are different talents, right? So there's special uniqueness there. And then you give, you know, however many years of life someone's had, 10, 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 years, and compounding influences on things like adaptive shortening, adaptive lengthening, uh, myofascial health or lack thereof, so on and so forth, it becomes this huge guessing game and puzzle game, right? And that's all we're doing. Honestly, even the best coaches, like it's still just a guess, but the goal is it for to be an educated guess and to have a hypothesis before you go about it and say, if I'm gonna ask someone to do this type of uh, conditioning, training, loading, exercise, what have you, I think the reaction is gonna be X, Y, Z in this time horizon. And then you have to take the scientific method and see if that you know theory holds true. And if so, why not? And if, and if so, great, continue on. But that's the reality, right? Everyone wants to sell you certainty where it's like critical velocity, polarized training, you know, whatever else is the way, the one way, if you do this, wow. And it's like, I mean, you've been in a clubhouse for a year. I think I've like highlighted four or five different things that are really important that someone could apply their training, whether it's flux training, biomechanics and reactive running. And then now we're getting into the weeds about anticholinergic protocols and training currently in the clubhouse with a really good, robust conversation on that, which is also couples into lactate dynamics and what the, you know, Ingebrigtsen and the Norway um, lactate uh, controlled lactate training law is all about. So, you know, I could have just said, oh, I got this one thing, wickets for runners, and that's all I'm going to make DVDs and videos. I'm make wickets. I'm going to sell that to you. <laughs> that's one piece of the, the fun puzzle. And that, that is the training menu um yeah. at our at our fingertips no oh, well said um i remember when oh, it would have been about 10 years ago when i um uh was sort of learning how to i was taking some pilates classes for the first time um at the physio clinic i um work i worked at and uh the pilates instructor in charge was um uh you know, showing me how it was done. And I was very much just learning the ropes and I was just asking her, oh, can you just show me this exercise, this exercise, this exercise? Can you show me your catalog of exercises? But she, would, she wouldn't show me um, the exercises because she's like, you need to know how to apply them. Um, like you need to have the clinical context and, and, and your reasoning um, there. And, and then it will be easier to understand why you're doing this and why you're doing that. And you can... Um, it'll hit home and, and you'll, uh, it'll make you a better clinician. And I didn't really understand at the time. I just was like, Oh, I was so frustrated. Why, why couldn't she just show me, you know, all the exercises. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I feel like that experience, like, um, uh, kind of stands out to me and I feel like I use it still today 
um, I guess, when I'm um, doing more coaching as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I always use food as a good uh, analogy, right? So, like, things, you know, I'm not knocking people who, like, hang their head on critical velocity or polarized training. I mean, those are very useful, um, let's call them meals, like pizza, cheeseburger, great. But if all you do is make and sell cheeseburgers or pizzas, then all you're going to do is say how good pizzas and cheeseburgers are <laughs> versus we have to take more of an executive chef approach where it's like, yeah, I can make you a really darn good cheeseburger, but also a really good um, salmon filet and also a really good quinoa salad and also a really good filet mignon. Like I can do all these different things as an executive chef, but oftentimes what happens is we coaches all and practitioners become overly specialized and hang our hat on one meal and saying, this is the, the godsend. And you got to know how flour interacts with butter, with milk and egg, and then what that mixture is going to do when it's in the oven at 450 degrees for 10 minutes. You got to know exactly what the chemical composition, breakdown, interaction process is going to be. What you were asking, your the applied structure for exercises. You just said, give me all the ingredients and just give me a recipe to follow so I don't have to think. And yeah. they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I couldn't do that. And I could probably make a lot of money if I did that. But you know what? I'm not going to just give you a fish. I'm going to actually teach you how to fish. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's awesome. I, I love listening <laughs> to that. Um, and I, I reckon the last two years I've experienced it even more so because I've changed jobs. I was in that job for 11 years. And so um i'm now working for myself and i'm doing more coaching um and i'm seeing a different clientele in terms of i'm seeing uninjured runners um that are striving for performance um, and participation and just um uh so that that's um also being a really um massive sort of perspective shift um because i'm seeing things from a different side of the fence um and i think that along with joining your scholar group has been really mind really expanding and i think it's a good experience for other people to hear because i think we can sort of yeah just get stuck in our silos and think that's the one perspective um that um is the reality of the world whereas like you got to look at the that same sort of reality from a lot of different views um to really get a a, a more holistic picture um yeah, I um, wanted to touch on um, the the biomechanics um, uh, aspect um, in the clubhouse and and the things that I've learned from you because uh, I feel like um, my understanding of biomechanics was pretty um, uh, uh, basic um, before I joined the clubhouse and then now um, after being introduced to texts from Franz Bosch and and Tom Tellers and, and John Keeley, it's really helped um, expand um, my comprehension of, of running and, and, and the importance of form. Um, uh, in Australia, our traditions are steeped in a mileage obsession uh, with the su success of like guys like Arthur Lydiard or Chris Wardlaw. Um, and, and, you know, they've just had great success with um, high volume uh, training programs um, down down under. Um, after listening to John, your um, podcast the other day, I heard you talk about the iceberg analogy, um, 
when it comes to building a base. Um, and I, I thought that was fantastic. And I just wanted to hear why you thought that we are potentially leaving some performance on the table if we don't actually address running technique as a, as a important skill to be worked on as a distance runner. Yeah, I mean, you know, remember, we got to go back with Lydiard, right? Lydiard came across some things in a really um, empirical fashion, you know, um, because he self-experimented. I mean, that's what, like, a lot of these uh, great coaches of yours did. It was, you know, even Sarity, right, Percy Sarity, uh, famous Australian coach, he self-experimented, and even in his old age. And again, they were totally off base on a lot of concepts, but they found some things out empirically that really, really worked. Like Lydiard really was one of the first running coaches to emphasize heavy block training with only training one or two biomotor qualities and nothing else. Couldn't tell you why it worked, but he knew it worked. Also mileage worked, right? For the initial preparatory um, marathon training phase. He couldn't tell you why it worked, he knew it worked. I mean, can't forget, Lydia is saying sprinters, 100-meter runners should be running 100-mile weeks for their initial, like, he advocated this, right? And then, too, we also have to look at the sample set. Um, there was a three-hour lecture that we have, and we shared on the uh, this clubhouse by Lydia when he came to San Jose State, and he says, this has been an experiment on 35 runners. I've only coached 35 runners in my coaching career. Think about how small that sample set is. And yet you've had, you know, within that small sample set, yeah, you had these Olympic champions, which was phenomenal in and of itself, but the ability for it to be replicated over and over and over again leaves some questions. And it's not that the, it's not say the um, biological reaction where this myochondrial biogenesis triggered through this glycogen de um, depletion is the question. It's the mode and method. It has to be 160 kilometers or more of uh, this kind of high-end aerobic running, and you can supplement it with an additional, you know, um, 100 kilometers or so of easy jogging. I mean, that's a lot of steps, right? So I think a reasonable person would ask, if I'm going to take, undertake a, you know, tens of thousands a day step regime to get a biological um, stimulus and then hopefully an adaptation, then I better make sure that these reps every step's a rep, are pretty sound and good. <laughs> but that's not what we do. We just say we run how we run, right? And fortunately, Mother Nature's really smart. <laughs> she gave us the capacity of what we call, um, you know, uh, form closure, where your body will collapse into a stable form if you don't have the supporting musculature to create force closure via the muscle contraction. And we know this how. Well, when babies walk, they basically have no glute muscles, right? And you need the glute muscles to kind of help stabilize the pelvis and locomotion. But the way the femurs are angled in and so on and so forth and how they sit in the sockets and the fact that the knees can come in and kind of collapse and touch each other and give you a little bit more stability or you can overpronate, right? You can never sprain your ankle when you in eversion, never. It just doesn't happen. It's always an inversion. <laughs> um, you know, I've never said, oh, I have an inside ankle sprain. I've never heard that. Uh, it's very rare, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but a lot of times, it's it's the scaffolding that gives us the ability to then create this force closure. But what happens, unfortunately, in modern society, we use our body so less or in such a wrong way 
because we're so compelled to get the mileage in, no questions asked, that we didn't ask like, what is the best avenue or how are we actually designed? And what are all the capacities and abilities our body naturally has and how do we leverage and utilize that to help make those steps easier and more impactful and more effective to drive the adaptive responses we want. Yeah, nice. And um, uh, through the um, Scholar program, uh, you've talked a lot about um, uh, reactive running and um, the idea of uh, fascia and, and, and being able to position our bodies um, uh, through the laws of physics so that we can um, get our body in a good position and, 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 and time time our movement so that we can use um, the free energy that tendons and, and passive tissues that we're made up of can, can give us, like that elastic uh, rebound and recoil. Um, uh, I feel like runners need to hear more of this um, because um, I know my whole career was just volume, 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 run, 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 and there we would watch sprinters um, focus on high quality movement, but um, more, more, more often than not, we would just we would um, uh, be like, oh, they're just sitting down all the time. They're not doing anything. Um, <laughs> whereas now I've got a better appreciation that they're really thinking about their movement, and and um, that's a that's a really good skill in itself. Yeah, well, hundred percent. You know, like. Um, high volume, lots of running, it works. It does work. Now, it's just a question of effectiveness. How effective is it? And then it's also a question of sustainable. So it's a matter of, is it both effective and efficient? And we're always kind of looking at that spectrum. You know, this is teachings from my mentors at Altus, Stu McMillan, and Dan Path of like effective and efficiency. So we may have a really inefficient technique that's really effective, but is it sustainable? And, you know, thankfully now with the uh, injection of super shoe technology into the running world, it's allowed people with really ineffective uh, or inefficient technique to maximize or even um, elevate their effectiveness in running training and times, right? And the fact that everyone's times got faster shows you actually super shoes are designed to do what the body and foot is capable of doing, provided we put in the right position. You know, when we think of the story of fascia, oftentimes we are aware in our kind of introductory education, just a muscle, right? And it's very rudimentary. It's muscle moves bone. And we do bicep curls to work the biceps. We do, you know, leg extensions to work the quads. And it's this very reductionist. We got arm day, we got leg day, very much uh, these meathead bodybuilder concepts. And the reality is the body, the brain, and we know this from Kinesiology 101, does not know muscle from muscle. It only knows movement. It only knows task goals. So if you want to pick up a coffee cup or you want to run 10 miles, your brain is just tasked with a goal to complete. And it's going to recruit as it needs to um, different movement patterns to satisfy that goal. Now where fascia or, you know, comes into play is there's all this different, it's a pretty broad terms, right? And a lot of people think it's pretty, it's this magical woo-woo thing. Like, you know, I, I just got finished reading off of your recommendation, someone else, The Lost Art of Running, which is a great book um, by, uh, oh, Shane, you know, Shane, Shane Benzies. Yeah, Shane, yeah, Benzie. And he's definitely on the path, 
He is on, and I love reading about people on the path, and I love seeing where they are on the path. He's not, you know, there's still some clarity and light bulbs and corners that need illumination, but he's further down the path than most. So that's good to see. But in it, fascia is kind of presented as this catch-all thing, or as just mild fascia, as connective tissue communication system that resides only in the muscle belly. Fascia includes tendon, um, the myotennis junction, it includes uh, ligaments, it includes the extracellular matrix, it includes a lot. Like it, we, it's this really broad catch-all term. What we're really concerned with is connective tissue in general, and that even includes bone, right? So the laws of physics say energy can't just disappear, it has to go somewhere. So when we load in the running motion, our leg, when it strikes or hits the ground, we have a potential, an opportunity to recapture that energy of that leg coming down, that velocity, that energy of that leg coming down back into the system to help the leg go back up without our, our volitionary contraction. So free, reactive, passive, a reflex. You don't have to think about it. But this requires very precise coordination and also very precise postures. And it's not as precise as we think, but it feels really precise to someone who's never um, been exposed to it and has habituated a very inefficient style of movement to create a, a locomotion pattern that they might call running. That's kind of more, you know, very common one is this accelerative mechanic where the um, stance leg and knee becomes straight and extends and we get this quote unquote triple extension that we thought for a long time was the golden goose. But now we realize like, uh oh, that's a compensatory strategy. If it's outside of acceleration, uh oh, because it's very costly. And so you see runners, right, with these huge quads and big calves developed. But we really should be seeing runners that look more like sprinters with big butts. If you look at a lot of the Kenyan athletes and East Africans, they have really pronounced musculature in the gluteal groups, as well as very strong um, lats and also very strong hamstrings, that posterior chain, as we call it, or dorsal muscles. This makes total sense when we think about it. Um, because we're all tetrapods, right? We're in that kind of vertebra with four limbs family that your cat, your horse, dogs are in. We just happen to be bipedal. So because of our orientation and relationship with gravity, kind of we evolved to become really more efficient with this avascular capacity or what we call, you know, short stretch reflex or this elasticity, you know, springy. People come up with all these words for it describe the same phenomena. Um, but it was basically Mother Waitress designed for us to not expend calories. Um, so we could, again, be persistence hunters and really effective ones. And now we have to remember, right, Neanderthals were one, um, smarter and stronger, more muscular at the time of when we both, the hominids and us, uh, Neanderthals coexisted. But what happened was Neanderthals required about 5,000 calories a day because of their increased musculature and the needs for their brain. We only require 2,000 or so, right? So their inability to get as much food and calories to sustain life, man, they went out of business. And our ability to be more nimble and more flexible, so to speak, or more elastic, mean we stayed in business. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's like we have to realize this is a very long you know, evolutionary experiment that's been going on for millennia. And we just happen to be right here right now with some ideas about programming 
and we take it as the end all be all. But like I try to remind people, we're very, very much in the wild, wild west. There's only two things, right? There's wrong and there's less wrong. Yeah. There's no right. Yeah. <laughs> and so the goal is just to become a little less wrong today than you were yesterday. That's yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed um, uh, sort of thinking of the whole um, technological or t technical model more sort of like other sports like swimming or, or bike riding um, now where you do have to learn there's a more effective way to sort of move um uh whereas like initially i just thought oh you you just run you know everyone can run um and now gaining a bit more of an appreciation that um we can be more effective movers and that, that should be an aspect of training that you work on um um it's been really enlightening um and i've been using um these mini hurdles that you you've um suggested like the wickets and, yeah. and placing them out and um, getting my whole group to stride over them and uh, sort of videoing them and, and uh, sort of showing, you know, if they look like they're leaning too far back, trying to get their center of mass over their, over their foot or um, the queuing's really hard. Like you can't, I feel like I, as a coach, like I've been um, uh, prone to over, over, over coaching here and there and, and just needing to athlete to find their way. But um the great thing about the wickets is almost like there's less queuing and you just get them to run over the wickets and feel it. Um, uh, why um, are you such a big fan of the mini hurdles, John? Because I think um, I've really enjoyed them, but I think um, I, 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 down this way, there's not many distance runners that have been using them in the past. Um, but um, like a, it, um, I feel like it's a great thing and I've definitely um, started doing it and um, am a, a big advocate of it now too. Damn, I mean, it's the same crossroads that you're at where I came to, right? This concept yeah. of queuing and trying to communicate and speak the language about what I was looking for and what the athlete should feel or do or actualize was always just strike out, strike out, strike out. I just, I mean, my wife, you know, being on this journey who I've coached for you know many years I gave her a form cue and like only recently did we decide and discover that the, how she interpreted the form cue I gave her over a year ago was like this which is going to be the exact inverse of the sensation and movement pattern I wanted her to achieve <laughs> yeah and she said I've been doing this for a year I go I go but how and like it's just a miscommunication like her brain thinks differently than my brain. So she interpreted what I said as Z when I meant to be one. And it was just frustrating and frustrating and frustrating. So, you know, the constraints-led approach is the best approach to take because we often in physical uh, training and culture, we say, squeeze the glute, contract the thigh, do this. Well, as we established earlier, the brain doesn't understand that. So then now your task is focused on manufacturing this contraction when really it's just the goal should just be run over these things, run up the stairs, do this. Like I've cleaned up so many med ball slams and um, stability in the core, simply by putting an X on the ground, I go slam the ball here and just step in and step back. Yep. And like people will figure it out. So I think we always have to realize is, yeah, us coaches can jabber on and on and on. And it's kind of because we're trying to find the thing that will make it click for the person. But nine times out of 10, the thing that makes it click is a nonverbal cue that's constraint 
that they just have to navigate and where you kind of close what we call the degrees of freedom or possible degrees of freedom. So they only are picked with one or two or maybe three options and more than likely they're not are going to stumble upon or find the quote unquote desired pathway that you want as a coach. Now, getting to that point to be able to do that is really tough because yeah. it requires a lot of humility because you as a coach have to take yourself out of the equation, let them kind of stumble around like parents did when they let you walk. And then it's like just making sure like it looks good enough and it kind of feels right enough. And just reminding the people with form and technique, good enough's good enough. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be this. Like so many people are perfectionists and like, I want to be exact. It's like, nope, just more reactive, not perfectly reactive. Cause guess what? Races aren't gonna wait, you know, championships aren't gonna wait for you to get your form just right. Good enough's good enough, and then you gotta go. That's great. Um, yeah, I've certainly seen that. I've got a baby daughter who's 11 months old, and it's been it's it's our first. Um, and uh, just watching her develop and learning to crawl, um, I haven't been giving her glute exercises or yeah. uh, <laughs> like I've just been putting the TV remote, um, you know, two meters away, and and then she uh, starts to try to reach. Yeah. And it's funny how just construing the environment um gets her to explore movement and and she um like is learning by falling over and then uh you know learning by what works um so it's, it's been a really good um uh, a fascinating experience like um because it ties in well with this actually um yeah i mean you're not saying you're yeah. really, all right today we're your 10 reps of two meter crawls let's <laughs> go <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and then with the um, wickets, um, I, I've used it quite a few times with um, runners that are overcasting and um, uh, you know getting knee pain, or or even just like from a performance point of performance point of view, um, landing way out in front of them um, and spending ages on the ground, um, so they're not they're not quick off the ground, and, and then the direction of where they're applying the force, you know is fighting against them. It's like a breaking force. I found the wickets really useful in tr trying to show, show the athlete that, oh, how, how does this feel? How does this feel differently to what, how you used to run? And then they sort of um, just gradually sort of um, feel that. And um, it's, it, it's a, a long process. It's, a, it's not like it clicks straight away, but um, it's definitely a good experience. And, and a lot of them do say, oh, wow, that felt fast. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it should feel fast. Why? Because as we've established, it's you're just leveraging reflexes. As you've seen with you know your your child, like they come equipped with all these survival spinal cord level reflexes, where the brain doesn't have to give a volitionary command to make an action happen. Running tends to be slow because the the mental model, the picture people have in their brain of running, tends to be about manufacturing horizontal locomotion. The hard part is, and that this is what hurts people's heads sometimes, is all we have is gravitational, longitudinal, up and down, vertical um, um, displacement and force and energy. The only way that we can create that horizontal forward impulse is through rotation. And joint rotation is the key. So what that rotate ro rotary capacity, or that torque as we call it, or torsion, allows us to do is redistribute or interpret or translate 
the vertical force or the vertical force application into horizontal momentum. But if you don't have any rotary awareness or capacity, and you don't know like, oh, the foot and leg and ankle goes supination, pronation, back to supination, and this hurts your head, and you go, huh, what? No, I don't. Well, all those are are just a one planar views orientation of a rotation. Because it's three degrees or three planes of movement, right, plus the fourth, which is time. And we look at a lot of things sagittally, right? We have a sagittal bias. But we also have to take, like, a coronal, frontal, and transverse view. And you actually, I get a lot more of the frontal view on athletes than I do now in the sagittal view because the concept of flexion and extension, folding and unfolding of a, a joint like the knee or a hinge is really easy to see, but it's actually the most inefficient way for muscle to work and connective tissue to work. They work a lot better through rotation, which is this coiling or twisting and this untwisting. And we are, everyone's rotating, whether you know it or not. Some are better rotators or other. Some are rotating at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, we see this all the time where you want and say your shoulder girdle, your clavicle and your pelvic girdle, you know, what we call our hips. You want those, that carriage of that to be non-rotational, to be steady, stable, just iced, locked in. That allows the spine to create some spinal flexion and some rotation that then is translated to the arms and legs swinging. So many people though, it's like, I don't know if you ever swung a kettlebell. It's like if you, when you first start swinging a kettlebell, people try to swing the bell with their arms to make, to manufacture the action. And yeah, the bell swung, but the whole goal of strength and conditioning exercises or weights or lifting or resistance or gym is not necessarily to move the weight. It's to understand how to create movement in the face of this load, in this orientation you're in with gravity, whether it's your body, a bench press, a pull-up, a kettlebell swing, a deadlift, a squat, whatever. It's to understand how to manufacture safely, effectively, powerfully movement. But too often we just default to the, um, you know, superficial um, currency of status and go, hey, I just, you know, did three by three max squats at 400 pounds. Look at me. And it's like, yeah, the weight did move, but your knees went valgus at the wrong time. You had, you know, this kind of weird hip drop. You kind of tweaked your back. And I'm not arguing the weight moved. I'm just saying you didn't get the full gravity of the lesson to move the weight, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think um, uh, early on in the scholar group, um, I really wanted to ask, um, it was months ago, like, oh, should, do you... Do you shouldn't you intentionally like lift your, your knees up like um like don't like you use your, your hip flexors and then um soon like you you explain that um no that's that's more more a, a stretch reflex um uh uh and it's more as you push through the ground and the extensors work it stretches the front of the hip and then that almost like um uh lifts the leg through um because running so quick running so quick like you can't be like thinking about all these things like it, ha it has to be like a reflex to 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 run smoothly with the ground and get that timing um that was really um eye-opening but it made a lot of sense um uh because like um yeah it's just it's just way too fast for cognition to like um 
be a factor. Oh, yeah. And you can see runners that run like that, that run cognitively, like, um, or like, yeah, um, yeah, they, they lose those reflexes and, and um, they run very robotic, robotic and muscle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, and the difficulty, right, is, you know, it's, uh, you know, who taught you how to run, right? Someone taught you how to swim, someone taught you how to do a golf swing, a jump shot, you know, throw a cricket ball, swing cricket bat, what have you, right? And I take the view of it like this, right? Running form and technique is like potty training. We naturally come in in this world and we're just shitting all over ourselves and we're fine with it. And then all of a sudden we get some awareness because we get language and then someone says, hey, you know what? It's probably not the best thing to do that because it's just, it's not a good look. And they go, oh, really? And then you'll, as you'll see, it's this very laborious process to teach this child how to develop this pelvic floor muscles, hold in their fecal matter, you know, and urine and wait until they release it. But we all learned it. It was not easy, but we all figured it out. Now, it's the same thing with writing form. It's in the beginning, it's not easy. It's really laborious. It's kind of like pulling teeth. It's like, I was running fine this way. And, you know, well, yeah, it's like saying I was living life fine, shitting on myself all the time. I go, yeah, but in the long run, it's just not going to be a good look. And that's the same kind of like position I think we need to take with understanding um, harnessing and leveraging the reactive mechanisms within our body and really getting to understand it is a reflex and the longer like the difference between the gait cycle and running and the gait cycle and walking is you're predominantly spending most of your time of the leg and walking on the ground so you have more time to make corrections adjustments plus there's also the double stance phase in running we have the you know aerial phase which is basically double break from the ground we're actually technically released from it with both limbs, it's an open chain moment. And so that's actually where a lot of adjustment happens is in the air, aerial phase or the swing phase, right? But yet we don't do that. We just let the foot just kind of flop on the ground and then we'll go, okay, we'll flop on the ground and then we'll make adjustments. And so what ends up happening is it's like this um, repetition of micro flops and stops and then micro restarts and then people are like oh why do i have planners why do i have achilles why do i have calf issues it's because you're essentially if you're going for an hour run it's 5,000, 10,000 steps on each limb whatever right 5,000 on each limb that's 5,000 times you're having to restart the damn thing <laughs> and i just i might tell people it's imagine you drove your car and you just turn the engine on and off every second. And you'll, but your foot was always on the gas. You wouldn't get very far very quickly and it'd be very herky-jerky, but eventually you get accommodated to it and you just accept this is how you're supposed to drive, I guess. And you just kind of go with it. But when, if you know no different, it's hard to articulate through a person that there is a better way. And then going back to the constraint side approach of the wickets, the wickets clearly show that. Like, that's why I love it. You don't have to do any special uh, stretching drills or dynamic warm-up drills or anything. As long as your Achilles tendon is in good functioning order and so is the rest of your lower leg connective tissue musculature like within just good enough, not even great. You can take someone off the couch, run through wickets, and nine times out of ten, it'll be like pretty damn good reactive running form. Yeah, oh, I've seen it. Um, yeah, just here in the clinic. Um, um, and it, yeah, I've really... 
but th- but then I don't know if I'm just becoming recipe based, like um like um uh, as in like I'm just giving it over prescribing um because it's this new new thing that I'm really but like it I'm just using it to show like because it's the easiest way to show like okay there could be a different way to run like um uh but this whole concept has really opened my eyes to exploring even people's ability to perceive the the environment around them and their proprioceptive awareness like as a physiotherapist i i don't even reckon i've i've seldom factored that in um uh, i would always just you know strengthen or um yeah i definitely had an overwhelming bias to um certain physical aspects of training whereas the idea of like um oh I've got a runner who I coach who, whose vision's a little bit off. And so when he runs downhill, he runs scared. Like he runs with fear yep. and he just yep. runs tense and he overstrides and he, and he um, doesn't have good mechanics downhill. And, and you can see it all the time when he's a bit unsure of the footing. He, he runs a bit, um, uh, yeah, not as effective. Um, so it's, it's been um, uh, really interesting to start viewing it a bit more, um, yeah, holistically, even just about, how good is someone's sensory um, feedback of their environment that they're moving in and um, factoring that into the piece as well? Yeah, I think this comes back to uh, when you talk about individualization. It's We always got to remember we're coaching people who are athletic or want to do athletic things like running. And people are wired how we are. We're not psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, counselors in that regard. But you end up kind of becoming one if you're not... Uh, even if you're unaware of it, because you're fundamentally working with a human. And humans, by definition, we come into this world like, you know, like I said before, like uh, scared, crying, and shitting on ourselves. That's our <laughs> default. <laughs> you know, and it, it takes a lot to like get out of that. Um, and a lot of people like might just still be at a certain um, stage of arrested development. And it's tough because we as coaches tend to take a very structural, programmatic point of view. Like, we have a task. This is this long. We got to be ready by this date and it's going to happen. Versus some people just fundamentally aren't, um, from a maturation standpoint, emotional standpoint, ready. And I've coached, you know, people who've had depression and people who've gone through, like, depressive bouts. And when, and I... Uh, encountered it when I was too young to understand so I wasn't really that good of a coach for them and you know looking back now what I'm knowing about all those things I go, man I really messed that up <laughs> yeah like, I'm, I'm surprised like they still have like favorable you know outlook on me because I was kind of a dick because I was just <laughs> so focused on the structural goal of getting ready for the championship versus saying like how is this person's emotional state and like one of my colleagues and best friends, Mike Smith, is really, really good at that. And over the years has showed me the import of that, working with people, because brain chemistry is off for someone who's afraid and very much in a constant sympathetic state or who is depressed. Like I had a, a buddy of mine who was um, you know, prescribed like pain meds, and he's a happy, outgoing, really good, gracious, like gregarious guy. And he was having suicidal thoughts, thought his wife, his spouse was teaching on, cheating on him. And like, she's loyal as all blue, you name it, right? And it's just like, his brain chemistry just got messed up through all these, um, um, these painkillers he was taking for a condition he, you know, ha- had just developed, right? Uh-huh. And then he got off him and he's like, totally fine. So we under, I think, um, 
cut or do not really, in the coaching world at least, pay enough um, rev uh, reverence to the reality of people's mental fitness and how sometimes their mental fitness is not something they're totally in control of either. And we don't understand it. We think it's like a weakness thing. And it's like, man, I don't know anyone who knows how to like just think about altering their brain chemistry, right? We do that through different modalities like working out or alcohol or sex or drugs or what have you. We try to influence it, but just saying, hey, be tough, you know, no guts, no glory, like suck it up. It, it doesn't get the job done, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's, um, yeah, so, so well put. And, and that's definitely, a, 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 I've gone through a same journey um, with my physiotherapy as well. Like for, for years I was like um, stumped as to why like someone would know what to do, but then they didn't do it. Um, and just that the, whole idea of behavior and um how complex it is and and uh and motivation and yeah we're complex humans um <laughs> uh yeah i mean that's really like the importance though yeah. of just showing up right like if you show up to the group the party the practice that's you know another opportunity for you to reinforce or instill behaviors or esteemed um, patterns of living that you know, if left to, um, you know, our own devices or in isolation, as we all saw, you know, in the last couple yeah. of years with the impact of, um, you know, the uh, pandemic-related shutdowns across the world, it can start to spiral and cascade into a very much of a, a black hole. And so I've always loved having practices and t spaces and times to meet because, again, it gives people an opportunity to, like, trying a hat or a behavior and maybe they're wanting to make a change in their life. But if you just keep showing up and then just keep participating, what ends up happening is that the change happens. You know, it just, it's one of those things like, uh, you know, just how summer becomes fall, fall becomes winter. You can't say there's a specific date where it's just like the weather changed and all of a sudden it was winter. It's like, it bleeds into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, this has been a fantastic, chat john and um i'm so appreciative of all your time um uh if you don't mind i just wanted to finish off with just a few quick fire questions um oh. yeah um uh you've had experience being mentored by um some uh, pretty worldly coaches um i'd love to just hear like a, a quick sort of synopsis of what you gained from your experience with a few coaches um uh alberto zalazar what? I mean, he taught me a lot. He taught yeah. me a lot about um, thinking outside the box in terms of other things that may influence a, a runner's development. The more positive things were like strength and conditioning, speed work, things of that nature. And he also taught me a lot about what not to do and how not to act. <laughs> <laughs> a lot about that. You yeah. know, but mentors, like I say, for better or worse, they're part of your own DNA. And we use them like we use any other guides along the path. Uh, we, we can use them to point us in the right direction, and we can also use them to help, um, you know, kind of alert us to directions and uh, avenues not to go down. And in a lot of ways, he was actually really good at that. Like, don't do this. <laughs> Jerry Schumacher? Uh, I, you know, Jerry's a little bit of a, a, the inverse, right? I mean, 
he's kind of, I call him the hedgehog. What he knows about training, he knows really, really well. And that's all he knows. Like, if there's one person who I think in the world is applying a kind of like verbatim linear programming without maybe the bounding phase and as much emphasis on the hill phase, but basically from a marathon based training and then, you know, really high anaerobic work once that, um, you know, aerobic foundation has been set, it's him. Um, and I've seen people do stupid things under his tutelage, but also too, like I said, he's taught me a lot about the import of that and how impactful mitochondrial biogenesis is and always will be in the runner's uh, development pathway. But then his kind of total blindness to mechanics, which is ironic because, you know, I was giving him a hard time, you know, a little while ago, I was like, well, you have Pascal, who's his longtime friend, assistant coach and hurdle guy, hurdle, um, you know, technical guru, spend all this time teaching your people how to hurdle in a steeplechase. So mechanics obviously is important. Otherwise, you're just like, fuck it. Just go over the hurdle. <laughs> but yet in running, you know, he's blind to it. But to his credit, uh, he knows enough that he doesn't know anything about it. So he's not going to make the change. And over the last, you know, decade and a half, he's been privileged to just basically have his pick of the litter. So he gets really high movers who already were very well developed with speed and movement capacity from a young age. Like a lot of his most successful distance runners were you know, really good eight milers in high school and college, right? They weren't people who were already up to good cross country, 3K, two mile types. And then they became over time as he layered on the um, endurance, mitochondrial endurance um, capacity, really unstoppable because they wouldn't get tired, quote unquote, and they had this speed. But if you watch like none of the athletes get improved their like absolute foot speed, and so again, contrasting him with Alberto, Alberto was obsessed with absolute foot speed. Like, how fast can we get you guys at the end? Like, can we go 49? Can we go 48? What's your open core? What's your open 80 uh, meters? So, you know, that's why I think like it was good to be privileged to see both sides at the time when they were both actively coaching in Portland. Um, and, it, you know, it just it shaped me in a way, you know, I think few people get an opportunity to be shaped. Uh, Rob Connor. Oh shit, dude. I mean, RC is like, you know, that's my guy. I mean, he married my wife and I, <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah, he's our efficient. Oh, uh, you know, RC is, he is great because he always wants what I call the one pager. So I come in with all this technical, <laughs> you know, abstract theory. I'm, you know, super nerd out. I've read like five research papers today on this topic, 10 yesterday. I'm going to Soviet literature that no one's reading, buying the $500 book on advanced neurophysiology no one else is. <laughs> you must know how the hell to apply it. Like, dude, you just need to tell me what to do, when to do, why to do it, and for how long. Like, just, we call it the one pager. So he's really good at, like, keeping me honest. So whenever I'm typing in the Scholar program, or even on the podcasts, you know, I always think of RC, I go, I want him to hear this. And it, honestly, like when I uh, made these Mike Smith tapes, where we, I sat down with Mike uh, this couple months ago this summer, and we just talked about a deep dive on everything about his coaching, training philosophy, and what has made his program one of the best NCAA programs in the last five years you know, in, in the landscape. The packaging of it into three different parts was really so Rob would listen to it. Because I knew he wouldn't listen to 90 minutes straight. <laughs> <laughs> I knew his assistant would. I knew his scholars would. But I knew, like, 
oh shit, if RC's gonna listen to it, we gotta put it in the three pieces and then just kind of trickle them in at him. And they worked <laughs> great. And he listened to it, he loved them. He goes, Oh, they're perfect. It was like just as I was getting bored, it right it ended. I was like, sweet dude. So yeah, I mean he's a, a really fantastic mentor in a lot of ways. Nice, nice. Um uh and and then I just interested in like um What's ahead for you, um, coaching-wise and life-wise, uh, running-wise? Uh, what are you looking forward to, um, yeah, this year? What are you most excited about? I think the biggest um, excitement is a challenge. What I'm trying to figure out is how to create a space where I can coach remotely online because it's not going away anytime soon, and the pandemic kind of fast-tracked us that reality. And now, too, it's so cool because, yeah, you can coach people all over the world, but also do it in an effective way where it's more than just programming, right? Yep. So I'm trying to figure out how to create a database or communication that's seamless, quick, simple, and easy. And what that requires is essentially codifying my own coaching philosophy. So I've been in, you know, kind of a several-year pattern for about, I don't know, since 2019, developing this concept of what I call super running, which is kind of a playoff of Verkashansky super training. But it's a little bit more layered and nuanced than just give me a program. That's how everyone starts off. Like we said, first steps, first entry portal, give me a program. Great. Um, but now it's like I want to be able to bring simplicity, but also educated awareness to the import of breathing mechanics, the import of biomechanics and running, the import of uh, nutritional intake, um, pre and post um, activity, the import of global recovery, health and wellness, without it being so overwhelming that the you know average clientele um, or average runner is just going to feel like, okay, dude, this is like way too much. I only got like 60 minutes to two hours a day, maybe some days to spend on this. And you just overloaded me, right? Because as you see in the scholar program, I can overload people real quick because I'm processing at like warp speed. <laughs> so it's just packaging it in a way that is very palatable and digestive and attractive. You know, not to make bunches and oodles of money, but just to give people the opportunity to run in a way with a feeling and have results that they never thought was possible for them at any age. And that's an exciting thing because it's a challenge. I'm still plodding my way through it. And then two, just like, you know, again, continue to um, evolve and update the scholar program and just get more scholars involved. Like, because honestly, your contributions, name has been incredible. We have several other, you know, uh, scholars all over the world, the UK, um, you know, as well as all parts of America, Canada, who contribute regularly. And it just makes the the dialogue more robust and people are actually out in there solving real problems in real time with real suggestions and, you know, very intelligent solutions. And I just sit back and go, huh, I would never thought to have done that. <laughs> That's incredible. How blessed am I to see, to, you know, have access to this. No, and, and that, that's fantastic. Um, if, uh, for runners that listen to this and if they're interested in, um, listening to your podcast or, or reaching out about a scholar program, how do they find you and Steve and how do they um, uh, get involved? Uh, I mean, I still respond to uh, direct messages on Twitter. Kind of been a little, you know, dark with my tweets. And, you know, more of my tweets are just now fun and just playing the Twitter algorithm to, like, you know, <laughs> just, like stir the pot, so to speak. It's just all fun and games, right? It's not, it's not serious. Like, but shoot me a direct message on Twitter. Um, you know, the podcast is wherever in the world. It's like, 
Spotify, uh, Apple. I don't know. Steve puts it out. People listen to it and they share it. <laughs> but I honestly say, consider becoming a scholar and joining the clubhouse. Like it is the go-to place. Like the dollar a day, the U.S. dollar a day you spend on it is hopefully worth the return and then some. And like Steve and I's goal is just to keep it always as cheap as freaking possible. <laughs> Because yeah. we want a little bit of an X barrier to entry, but we don't want to make it ridiculous, right? So, oh, well, I can I can um, speak for it like, as I have during this podcast. It's um, been great, um, really expanded like my um, development as a as a runner and a coach. Um, uh, yeah, thanks so much for your um, time today, John. Like um, you are great, and you're always a pleasure to listen to, and um, uh, the way that you brain goes on tangents and um and you just think on your feet it's it's pretty amazing to hear um and listen to and i think a lot of um runners down in australia will be very appreciative uh for um yeah the podcast we did today well thank you dan yeah i'm really appreciative of the work you're doing and the good word you're spreading here and your passion and enthusiasm as well as your you know just open mindset i think that's always the biggest thing I remind people over and over and over again, keep an open mind, keep a growth mindset, and you never know where it's going to lead.